0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. Well, first of all, read Ecclesiastes 9, the verses 1 to 10, and then we'll go to 1 John, chapter 2, the verses 1 to 6. Listen together then to the Word of God as you find it, first of all, in Ecclesiastes 9, beginning at verse 1. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go. Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Thus far our Old Testament reading. Let's turn now to 1 John chapter 2, the verses 1 to 6. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. As Jesus did. Thus far our scripture reading, we then turn to our confessional reading in Lord's Day 18 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven, that Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead? Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world, as he has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all. For his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends us his spirit as a counter pledge by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, what happens to us once we die? What occurs in the grave? What is death like? All of these are very unsettling questions. It's not nice to ask them. It's also not nice to think about them, much less to discuss them or to try to answer them. And one might even say that they are especially out of place at a baptism, such as we have witnessed this afternoon. But nevertheless, beloved, I would remind you these questions are part of life, and they cannot be avoided forever. Yes, and the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes would agree, in chapter 9, a part of which we have read, he describes a destiny which he says is common to us all. And by that he means death. And he says some interesting, noteworthy things about it. For one, he says, anyone who is among the living has hope and adds For good measure, even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. He also adds these words, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. I think those are kind of brutal words, right? Poetic words, true words, but rather hard to take. And also, I might dare to add, sometimes confusing as well, some think that what the writer here is actually doing is building a contrast between this life and the afterlife. And from these few words, they then rush to conclude that either there is no life after death or that there is no conscious existence after death. But that's not what the author of this book is saying. The contrast he is describing is not between life and afterlife, but between life and death. And he says life is all about hope. Death, on the other hand, as far as we know it, is the end of the sunshine, the end of reward, the end of memory. The living know that they will die, but what do the dead actually know? And at the same time, we may know something about life and living, but what do we really know about death and dying? And then you can see that in view of all of that, the writer of Ecclesiastes urges us to enjoy this life and what it has to offer. Enjoy your food while you can and your wine. Be happy. Celebrate. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. So those are the opening words of Ecclesiastes 9. But then notice, if Ecclesiastes is not contrasting this life and the afterlife, but actually life and death, it is also not describing something between doing something and doing nothing. You come to verse 10. You read, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. And here too, there are some people who draw the hasty conclusion that in life, we work, and in the hereafter, we do nothing. We are nothing, and we do nothing. But yet yeah, that too is not correct. For the contrast, again, beloved here, is not between, between being busy here and doing nothing in the hereafter. No, the, the contrast is between what we see happening in life and what we see with respect to the grave. And of course, with respect to life, all kinds of things happen. But as far as we know, as far as we can see, as far as we can observe in the grave, nothing happens. You see, this is the language of observation that the author of Ecclesiastes is using. and So easily we get it wrong. And this should make us careful. Don't try to build a theology of the afterlife based on Ecclesiastes 9 because you will get it wrong. This is about life, And yes, this is about life and the grave. And as for the hereafter, that's something completely different. At least it's different for all those who believe, and especially for their Savior, Jesus Christ. For look, I would say to you this afternoon, look at our Lord Jesus Christ. After he dies... Rises and ascends. Does he know nothing? Does he do nothing? Hardly. He continues to know everything and to do everything. Indeed, in some ways, he, he knows even more. And in some ways, he even does even more. And so this afternoon, in connection with Lord's Day 18 and the ascension of our Savior, I preach to you on the ascended Lord, is busy in heaven. He's busy because there he defends us, he assures us, and he helps us. Well, beloved, no sooner does Lord Day 18 of the Heidelberg Catechism open and we are reminded that Christ did not go to heaven to do nothing. Many people in the past and some in the present assume that heaven is the place of perfect rest and retirement. Mushy poetry, wrong-headed theology, I've convinced many that in heaven nothing happens. All is quiet, all is peaceful, all is tranquil. The saints lounge on pillowy clouds. The angels fly and flitter here and there or else they make delicious dessert with Philadelphia cream cheese. And not a soothing sound can be heard. Now, of course, it's not unbiblical to connect heaven with an absence of pain, sorrow, tears, and tumult. Only do not jump from there to the conclusion that in heaven nothing happens or that it is somehow devoid of activity, even drama, And excitement. Why a close look at answer 46 throws cold water on that idea right away. It says that Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit, and that until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Notice that according to these words, Christ's presence in heaven, is beneficial. He is up to something there. Something that is good for us. And notice as well that his presence there is described as a time of preparation. He's getting ready to return. His agenda isn't complete. It's not finished. So he's active there, and he's preparing there. But in what way is he active there? Well, look at the opening words of answer 49. First, he is our advocate before his father. That's, you know, another way of saying that Christ went up to heaven and set up a law firm. The word advocate means the same as lawyer, defender, intermediary, Christ Jesus today is practicing law in heaven. Of course, you may be wondering where that strange idea comes from. Well, I remember taking a course 25 years ago or so at Regent College where a famous conservative New Testament scholar who was of the opinion that Christ in heaven is as good as unemployed. And all that he is doing there, this man, this expert said, is he's resting on his hard-won laurels. He's sitting there at the right hand of the Father and doing nothing more than relaxing and enjoying himself at last. Well, that's not true. The Catechism dismisses this idea and it does so on the basis of Scripture. Romans 8 verse 34, take note of the words, Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. Or what about 1 John 2, verse 1 that we've read? My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father. In our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You see, what these words tell us, beloved, is that today, Christ is busy in heaven interceding and defending his people. He is not sitting on the right hand of the Father resting and recovering. No, he is pleading our case. He is stepping up to the plate for us. He's going to bat for us. And isn't that great news? Isn't that something to celebrate? Do we not all need a lawyer? and especially a lawyer in heaven? Of course, if we were all perfect people, this would not be necessary. But who of us can claim to be perfect? Who of us can claim that we always think right and speak right and do right? Well, even this child here this afternoon who was brought for baptism cannot claim that. Oh, I know he looks cute and he looks very innocent. But there's more here. The form for baptism captures it with these words, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath. And sure, beloved, this child and all of us need defending We need someone to plead our case before heaven's throne. We need someone who addresses the fact that the things we should do, we don't do. And the things we don't do, we should do. We need help, lots of it. Because our days here below are so often filled with angry words and with hateful actions and with dirty thoughts and with evil deeds. How often do we not offend God's holiness and ignore his law? Now let it also be said that this defending that we need is not something minor, Or easy? When Christ stands up and pleads our case, he is not dealing with nice, respectable, innocent, perfect people. And nor does he have a huge pool of great character witnesses to call on. And neither does he or can he glibly point to all kinds of extenuating circumstances. No, this defending takes more. It needs a special kind of defense. It requires a lawyer to act, but then a lawyer to act in a very special kind of way. For the fact of the matter is that all of the people arraigned before God's throne are guilty. We're all guilty of sin. We all have no excuse, no defense. The only thing that actually we have in our favor is this great lawyer who turns to God, the judge, and says, I am here to speak to you about these people. For they are my people. I have died for them. I have paid for them. I have washed their sins away. Truly, I have done for them what they could never ever do for themselves. I am the righteous one. I am there. righteous one. In 1 John 2, It says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. More accurately, John writes that he is the propitiation. Old-fashioned word, but powerful word. He is the propitiation for our sins, meaning that he is the sacrifice who bears God's wrath and turns it into favor, our favor, And so, beloved, be astounded. Be astounded by the fact that today Jesus Christ is lawyering in heaven for you. And be even more astounded that he does this on the basis of his own life. And his own sacrificial work. He is defending us who have no defence. And he's doing it with the one and only defense that holds any water. Himself. His perfect life. His sinless work. His righteous deeds. But then beloved, if Christ is defending us in heaven, he's also busy there assuring us you might wonder what that is all about. Well, in part, that's about our insecurity. You know, sin not only stains and pollutes us, it also makes us doubt. And as a matter of fact, if we're honest, I think we have to say that we doubt most everything and everyone. We certainly doubt our politicians, if not our bankers. At times we doubt our teachers and our pastors. We doubt our parents and even our children. And the opposite of doubt may be trust. But you know, trust too is often in this life a big problem. We who doubt almost everything and everyone have a hard time trusting anyone about anything. By nature, we tend to be somewhat suspicious, if not cynical. Yes, I'm sad to say, that also extends at times to the very promises of God. To his little promises and his big promises. It extends to his promise to care for us and his promise to save us, to forgive us, as well as to resurrect us. You know, last time we dealt with Lord's Day 17. And there we were reminded and taught about the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And we not only looked at the fact, but we also looked at the fallout. And the catechism insists that among the fallout of his resurrection is the fact that his resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. You know, we see how Christ defeats the last enemy and we know and are told we shall as well. We see Christ rising from the dead and we are told we shall rise too. We see Christ going up to glory and we're told we too are headed to glory. What huge promises. What great and mighty injections of hope. But, do we believe it all? Do we really? And truly believe what it says about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. You know, we have our struggles. And and, you know, God knows this. And, And because God knows this, I surmise and I conclude that probably that's why he piles up more and more pledges in our lives. But look here in Lord's Day 18, there's another pledge. The pledge is to be found in his very Son Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ, as I said, is lawyer in heaven. But how is he doing this work? In what capacity? What does he look like? Oh, he looks like us. When he defends us, he does so as someone who shares our flesh and our blood. He possesses our very humanness in heaven. You know, the Apostle Paul says he's up there, just like we are. The Apostle Paul writes, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's what you read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And you read that and you scratch your head and you say to yourself... When did God do that? When were we raised with Christ? And and when were we in heaven with Christ? And when were we ever seated with him there? Physically, materially, temporally, we've remained here. But the scripture says spiritually and symbolically. We're up there already. Christ is up there in our flesh. And that's a pledge that one day we shall be there in the same way as well. If Christ takes his flesh to heaven, there is a way and a sense in which our flesh renewed will be there too. And beloved, there is no reason to doubt this. All there is really and truly is reason to look at Jesus Christ in heaven with our very own flesh and to rejoice. His physical presence there is just one more promise in a long line of promises. This head is not and never will be bodiless Where he goes, his people go. Where he lives, his people live. Yes, and if that were not enough, beloved, notice as well that here in Lord's Day 18, according to the Scriptures, summarizing the Scriptures, the Catechism says that not only do we have a lawyer who defends us, who defends us in a special way and who defends us In our very own flesh, we also have someone who helps us beyond measure. Only, beloved, the help that he gives isn't human help. It's not monetary help. It's not predictable help. No, the help that he gives to us comes in the form and in the person of the Holy Spirit. And you know, such help is never, ever to be discounted. Look only at the followers and the church of Jesus Christ before Pentecost and after it. Before the Spirit came, the church was weak, devoid of courage, vision, knowledge, understanding, conviction, courage. But then he came and looked at what happened. Ignorance vanishes. Fear of persecution suddenly means nothing. Being arraigned before the authorities doesn't intimidate them. Threats do not dissolve them. Death does not deter them. Nothing, absolutely nothing hinders them. The march is on. The march to the kingdom of God. And all this, beloved, is due to only one thing. And that is to the coming down of the Spirit at Pentecost. Before it happened, Christ predicted that it would happen and that it must happen. He told his followers in John 14, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Here the Father had given to His people one counselor already in the person of Jesus Christ, but one day His redeeming work is going to be done. And well then, why then another counselor will be needed, a different kind of counselor. You see, the role of the first counselor is to save them. The role of the second counselor is to keep them on the road. Of salvation. And that's what he did then. And that's what he's still doing today. The Spirit comes to us with all kinds of empowering and enabling gifts. He comes with gifts for then and there with temporary and extraordinary gifts like tongues, miracles, and miraculous powers. He comes as well with lasting gifts, prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing, leadership, mercy. He comes with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, beloved, how rich and how spiritually affluent we are today. If the church thought that the departure of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit would make her poor, she could not have been more wrong. Loaded down with the gifts of the Spirit, the church went out and confronted the world. Nation after nation, was confronted with the gospel and surrendered to the gospel. And the same still goes on today in many places in Asia and Africa and South America. Where is the church today growing? Where people bear witness in the power of the Spirit. And where they continue to fix their eyes on the things that are above. And where is the church shrinking and shriveling today? Where people lower their eyes and fix their eyes and their hearts on the things that are below. Need more be said, beloved? You and I may be living in a world that is ever increasingly fixing its eyes on the things that are below. But that doesn't mean we need to go along with it. If there is still hope for Canada and for the United States, it will come through those who rely on the spirit of the word and the word of the spirit. It will come from those whose eyes are raised, fixed, focused on Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God. May Christ be our vision and may he fill our vision. May His our ascended Lord and Savior fill us with his presence and power. Yes, he's busy today. He's still wonderfully busy for us. And may that spur us on to be busy for him, for the glory of his name, for the building up of his church, and the coming of his kingdom. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.